I have to stand back here. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so if you could all come up and take your seats. Before uh, introducing tonight's speaker, I'd like to talk briefly to you, uh, mostly for the freshmen, about why we have a lecture series and why we have it as part of the curriculum. Right? So we really ask you to be here. It's not, uh, not just optional. We think of the lecture series as being complementary, if only in a small way, to what we do in the classroom. And we think it is complementary both as regards method and regards its content. The discussion method is a beautiful and pleasant way to proceed. Pursuing the beginnings of wisdom and dialogue with friends. It is engaging in a way that lectures are not. It, stirs, it helps to stir up wonder in our souls. And it helps the consideration of the topic at hand to be proportioned to the student in a way that a lecture generally cannot. And it benefits from the lights of the different minds taking part. But it is not perfect, and it is not the only way to learn. A discussion can take many wrong turns, as you may have noticed, and can meander from the main line of inquiry. There is another collateral effect of having those different lights. They are not always pointing in the same direction. And so it is sometimes hard to get them to work together. Lectures have perfections that make it possible for, for them to avoid these shortcomings. In the lecture, there is one light, that of the lecturer, and so it is better able to keep the discourse on track. For that reason also, if the lecturer is wise and the hearer is attentive, the lecture can take the student farther in a shorter period of time. And so while it is important to discuss, it is also important to develop the ability to listen intently and intelligently 
to an extended discourse. Another reason why we have lectures is that the exclusive use of the discussion method over four years can produce a strong custom in you and make it difficult to learn in another way. So providing lectures is a way of exercising our minds in different ways, of keeping them from hardening into too narrow a custom. It also helps to combat a hardening of habits in the words we use and the things we think about. Over the next four years, you will develop a peculiar vocabulary consisting of per se, peracidens, ratio, barbara, <laughs> and children. These will set you apart from the crowd. You will also become habituated to thinking about some of the highest things, but not all, and not even wholly of the ones we do think about. It is good then to listen to an intelligent speaker who is not from our own community, to be challenged intellectually by someone who understands things that we do not take up in class, or does not share a vocabulary, or even our views about what we study. It is good to remind ourselves that there are things worth considering that stretch beyond the immediate confines of our curriculum. It is a goal of liberal education that it produces a soul that can attend to and make judgments on many topics according to the many kinds of discourse. Thus, just, as, just in their mode, the lectures are an important part of our education. But because the lectures are finally ordered to seeing some truth, which may not be perfectly graspable from the lecture, it is followed by a discussion period. Here you have an opportunity to clarify points that you weren't sure you had grasped, or even to challenge claims that were made in the lecture. Now, it's important to keep in mind that visiting lectures might not be accustomed to the discussion approach with all of its candor. I want to tell you a story about this. So, I am not a graduate. I'm a Gentile. <laughs> but my wife is. And she told me a story about, uh, I think it was her sophomore year, sophomore theology, in fact. Or, uh, remember those, those of you who were upperclassmen in the anti-Pelagian writings? Uh, she had a fellow in her class who uh, uh, had been a big football star in high school. He was a big, burly guy, big, strong voice. Uh, they got into this back and forth in uh, their discussion of Augustine there. And at a certain point, my wife was about ready to make that final attack on him. He leaped up out of his chair leaned across the table, pointed at her face, and said, I know what you're going to say. You're wrong, so don't even say it. <laughs> I asked you not to do that to our lectures. <laughs> so feel free to challenge anything that seems unsound in what we've said, but be sure to be polite to our guests to raise objections with goodwill, and to seek the truth rather than the victory of your own opinions. Now tonight's discussion will begin shortly after Dr. O'Reilly concludes, uh, though
though attending is not required, I do encourage you to attend. Right? And because the weather is so fine, you'll have this one out in front of the library with wine and soft drinks and cheese. Right? So. In addition to the lectures, we do have a few concerts throughout the year. You might be asking yourself, why do we include concerts in our curriculum of studies? The most important thing to say here is that we hold with Socrates, and with Plato, and with Aristotle, and most all who have thought seriously about the intellectual life, that an appreciation of beauty is essential to any real appreciation of wisdom. And the love of beauty is especially fostered by listening to good music. It will perhaps be surprising to you freshmen how much time Socrates devotes to the consideration of music in the Republic that you'll read at the end of the year. To live the life of the mind well, it is extremely important to have a love of beauty, and this especially in music. Music moves us effectively, powerfully, and directly. It is worth paying close attention to how our music listening habits tend to move us to appreciate higher things. Think, for example, the way that the polyphony sung at mass elevates the mind and heart. And of course, taking pleasure in good music is an acquired taste. Learning to delight in the music of Bach and Mozart is like learning to appreciate the bitter smokiness of a good cup of French, uh, French roast coffee. Or even better, rejoicing in a geometrical demonstration of Euclid. Who, after all, alone has looked on Beauty Bear? So, learning to love good music, or rather great music, prepares the soul to love learning, to take delight in all that is true, all that is good, and all that is beautiful. So, come then and enjoy this concert. One last thing by tradition, the opening lecture of the college's St. Vincent de Paul Lecture and Concert Series is given by one of the members of our own teaching faculty and uh, is intended to address some aspect of liberal education. And tonight's speaker is our president, Dr. Paul O'Reilly. So I'd like to introduce Dr. O'Reilly to you now. Dr. O'Reilly came to St. Thomas Aquinas College in the fall of 1980 and enrolled as a freshman. He was a successful student, served as head prefect under the then assistant dean, Dr. Michael McLean, who was just stepped down as president, served as head prefect under the then assistant dean, excuse me, and met his wife, Peggy, and graduated from the college in 1984. He went on to study philosophy at the University of Laval in Quebec, his first teaching job was at St. Anselm's College in New Hampshire, about an hour and a half from here. And he returned to CAC as a tutor in 1989. Dr. O'Reilly is a great tutor, and uh, I'd like to give a personal testament to that. Um, when I came on to the faculty back in 1998, um, as a Gentile, not knowing what I was getting into. Uh, I benefited greatly from Dr. O'Reilly's friendship. Uh, from his example, I was able to uh, co-lead seminars with him in the high school program. Uh, I was able to sit in on his classes 
uh, when I was unsure about how mine were going. And uh, uh, I was very impressed, very edified by uh, the way in which he led the classes, how he was respectful of the students, how, he, how well he understood the texts, and the ease and grace with which he led the conversation through those texts. Um, there are many aspects of his tutoring that I could never hope to imitate, uh, but uh, the fundamental spirit of loving the students and loving the texts and loving the truth that he was trying to um, uh, hand on to them was something that moved me greatly. So I, owe great, uh, I personally owe great debt of gratitude to Mr. O'Reilly for uh, his example when I was a new tutor. Now, before becoming president, he served the college in several key capacities as assistant dean for student affairs, vice president for development, vice president for advancement. He loves wine, golf, and playing soccer. Uh, now, uh, I just said some very complimentary things about Mr. O'Reilly, but I can't let him off quite that easy. Uh, the, uh, um, we're, we're a fairly young community here. And though we're in the process of it, we haven't really developed the kind of lore that goes with the community. They have that out in California. We're getting it here. Uh, but I want to share with you some lore from the other campus. Uh, I remember, well, I can't remember exactly when, but shortly after I joined the faculty, hearing uh, this wonderful story about junior music. Um, the, uh, those of you who've done junior music, I think they still read uh, tonality, which is in, in the junior music tutorial. Um, uh, the author of that book, um, Dr. Molly Gustin, was one of our faculty members, and she was um, sui generis. Uh, there's no one quite like Mrs. Gustin. Uh, and uh, she, there, there are lots and lots of stories that the graduates can tell you about her, but one that really struck me was, uh, as those of you who have been through the music tutorial know, at a certain point you're asked to write a sonata. Uh, and uh, uh, I heard about this student who had written a sonata uh, and brought it into class, and uh, Mrs. Gustin looked at it, uh, asked him, did you write this? He said, yes. Have you played it? No, I, I, I'm not a communicator, so you want to hear what it sounds like? Yes, I'd love to. She walked over, turned around, and sat on the keyboard. <laughs> 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 Wonderful story. I just recently found out that the one who wrote that synopsis is Dr.
Mr. King doesn't know this, but uh, I was a prefect, as he said, and I had to enforce dress code on Mrs. King many a time. <laughs> <laughs> With regard to socks. <laughs> Somehow she couldn't find them. <laughs> so she took extraordinarily great pleasure in pointing out, tonight I'm not wearing pants that are dress code. <laughs> I thought it was a shit confession right away. <laughs> I would like to thank you um, for coming one week later than normal um, to accommodate my desire to, to talk to the student body. When, last week I, I gave this talk in, in California and I get, got in on relatively early Friday morning. And some of you know Mr. Jim Lake. And, uh, I noticed he was wearing a very nice suit. And so I asked him, why do you all dress up? He says, for your lecture. And I'm like, this is a big deal. I've become a big deal. He'll dress up for me. And then he added, yeah, I usually wear it for funerals. <laughs> This is, you mentioned Karachians. I don't think this is accidental. The dean, Dr. Goyette, out there thought, let's, after the lecture, serve wine and beer to the students who are older. After my lecture, as if that would take away some of the pain. <laughs> and apparently, Mr. Kane thinks it's a good idea, too. <laughs> I think, honestly, this is a difficult lecture to give the opening lecture, because the freshmen have been here for two weeks, the, the sophomores have completed the year, and the juniors are st just starting the second half of their career here at the college. Um, so you've got a mixed audience in some way, and then you've got the faculty, some of whom have taught the entire program, many of whom know the material better than, than I do. So the question is how to target the audience, how to think about what kind of talk would do well with such a diverse group? So I want to be straight, straight up right now. The principal audience for this talk are the students. Now, that doesn't mean that the faculty don't have a role. It, if, if I go astray, if I say something wrong, I expect to be corrected. If I do not develop a point that should have been developed more fully, I expect assistance from, from everybody. But I know the faculty will, will only be too willing to learn. So let's begin. What can the new atheists teach us about our program? Atheism, the denial of God's existence, is almost as old as creation. So what is meant by the new atheists? There are at least four well-known authors who have been so-called. Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. They are called the New Atheists, as best I can tell, for at least two reasons. One, they not only reject religious belief, but they attack it in a way that has not been seen before. Fueled by mass media, gifted with bombastic rhetoric, they have voiced an antagonism for religion that goes so far as to suggest that educating the young in religion is a form of child abuse. 
They also seem to think that their challenge to traditional Christianity is novel. They're the new kids on the block. But this is one of their weaknesses. They are unaware or uninterested in the anticipation of their views by the great teachers of faith, the doctors of the Catholic Church, in particular, St. Augustine and St. Thomas. Let me give you an example of some of their rhetorical one-liners from Hitchens. I don't believe there's a single word of truth in either Exodus or Genesis. Now that's a shocking statement. I was thinking about that. What about there was light? That's true, isn't it? There's not a single word of truth in Exodus or Genesis. Or religion comes from the period of prehistory where nobody had the smallest idea what was going on. It comes from the bawling and fearful infancy of our species and is a babyish attempt to meet our inescapable demand for knowledge. And the reviews of their books illustrate the influence they have. One reviewer wrote, the most coherent and devastating indictment of religion they've ever read. All right, so that's a little offensive. Why does this matter? Would it be better just to ignore them? I don't think so. If we ignore their positions, we do so at our own peril. For the times we live in are formed by popular arguments, not by precise scientific or philosophical considerations. It's my view that the position of Dawkins and others will be persuasive to many, and that as a result, the anti-religious positions they advocate will become more mainstream. The effects will be felt in schools and in the public square. Consider these words of Socrates in the dialogue of Pythagoras. Knowledge cannot be taken away in a parcel. When you have paid for it, you must receive it straight into the soul. You go away having learned it and are benefited or harmed accordingly. Most of us are affected by contemporary thinking and we're hardly aware of it. It is even more that way for the very young. As the position of the new atheists becomes more and more embedded in our culture, it will be difficult to undo the intellectual customs and prejudices of those who have absorbed their rhetoric. We need to have a new strategy. It seems to me that many of our Catholic schools are not prepared for the coming challenge. TAC students of the antidote. You are learning to consider and defend first principles. You understand the different kinds of arguments. You understand where philosophy and theology begin and end. You are becoming equipped with the, hope, with the help of the Holy Spirit to renew the face of the earth. However, you might be wondering, if I think the new atheists are wrong, and indeed I do, why waste our time discussing their positions? Mr. Mark Berkowitz gave a wonderful lecture many years ago 
entitled, Where Philosophers Disagree. One of the things he said during that lecture is, quote, to study philosophy is to study disagreement. And later he adds, one would remain in dogmatic slumber if you were never challenged by certain contradictions. And finally, he adds, the beginner, if he is a strong mind, will see in these disagreements an opportunity to learn. I think this audience is likely inclined to disagree with the positions of the new atheists. But in that respect, you are a minority in our culture. But what can we learn from our disagreement? That's what I want to explore tonight. So my thesis is quite straightforward. The best way to understand our disagreement with the new wave of religious criticism is to be aware, to be aware of basic philosophical principles and some fundamental theological distinctions. I will begin with a brief consideration about the nature of faith. Then I will consider the three basic objections the new, the new atheists raise about what Christians believe. And this is how we can learn from the new atheists, by considering their objections. Then I will propose responses to their objections. Finally, I will point out in a general way how the program at TAC equips us to stand up to the new atheists. That should show that TAC students are well positioned to be, as John Paul II put it, the new evangelists. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins is critical of religious faith. Quote, faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. The problem is you don't have to make a case for what you believe. Further, he claims, the higher one's intelligence or education level, the less one is likely to be religious or hold beliefs of any kind. Now, Dawkins' criticism is not new at all. It was St. Augustine who said, quote, there are those who think that the Christian religion is what we should smile at rather than hold fast. For this reason, men are commanded faith about things which are not seen. We may refute these men whom folly has made so made subject to their carnal eyes. For there are many things they not only believe but also know, which cannot be seen by such eyes. Whatever else is the case, this is what's true about faith. It's accepting something not on the basis of direct evidence, but on the testimony of another. What the new atheists fail to see is that faith which is a kind of trust, even in other human beings, is necessary, natural, and reasonable. If faith in other human beings has these characteristics, it's not an objection to religious faith that you don't have to make a case for what you believe. Now, the assumption, of course, is that a case cannot be made. But I think your four years of theology here at the college will show that indeed a case can be made 
and that the Christian faith is reasonable. Okay, so now to the reasons why the new atheists object to the existence of God. They raise a not good number of, of objections in different books, but as best I, I can tell, as best I can tell, these reduce to three kinds of arguments. But before mentioning their arguments, I thought it would be helpful to consider something that the juniors are about to consider, the seniors have considered, and the rest will consider. In St. Thomas, the Summa Theologiae, before he turns to the proofs for the existence of God, he considers two objections one might make to show that God does not exist. The objections go something like this. The first one. If God exists, he's infinitely good. But the presence of infinite goodness would mean that there would be no evil in the world. That's not the case. There's evidently much evil in the world. So God must not exist. The second objection, again, roughly goes like this. It seems that all things can be explained either by natural principles or by the human intellect and will. Therefore, there's no reason to suppose that God exists. Now, I think there's much contained in these two objections. Does St. Thomas think that these are ultimately the only plausible objections to God's existence? St. Thomas does not say so explicitly, but I think that all the objections to God's existence do come down to these two objections. And one also might wonder, why does St. Thomas put the objections in the order that he does? Why start with the problem of evil? We'll return to that in a moment. Now I said earlier that the new atheists raise at least three main objections to the claim that God exists. And I will argue that these three objections actually reduce to the two objections that St. Thomas anticipated. So here are the three objections, as best I can tell. One, it's, inco it's incoherent, incoherent to hold that God exists in light of the evil in the world which is alleged to be created by a good God. Two, it's unreasonable to conclude that God exists because everything can be explained in terms of natural principles. And three, the principal religious texts, and here they usually focus on the Bible, are irrational and also mere copies of pagan myths. Hence, they are fictions and unreasonable. And insofar as they are fictions, any belief that they engender is as irrational as the basic paganness. So let's go through those one at a time. First, the problem of evil. Very often, the new atheists point to particular horrific acts of wickedness and undeserved suffering in very graphic detail to make the case that there cannot be an all-powerful good God. Now you will come, uh, you will see a compelling version of that in the novel, novel Brothers Karamazov, you can see your seminar. How should we respond 
to the citadel. I would like to suggest that we be careful in how we approach the problem of evil. One way to, to address a problem is to learn from those who have suffered evil. And I will consider the case of Holocaust survivor Ely Weissel, W-I-E-S-E-L, Ely Weissel. Though C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read his conversion, is also an extraordinarily powerful witness. Weissel's book, entitled Night, is a very difficult book to read because it narrates the author's experience, along with his parents, in the Auschwitz concentration camp. As one reviewer wrote, night is almost unbearably painful. The reader confronts the horror of man's wickedness in this book. Now, I hope this is not too graphic, but here's an example. And by the way, it's probably one of the more subdued examples. And here I quote. Three prisoners, two men and one boy, were accused of sabotaging the power plant at Auschwitz. Weissel describes what he saw. The three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs. In unison, nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men. But the boy was silent. Where is the merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in camp. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging from this gallows. And just to be clear, this is not meant to be a blessing, an affirmation of faith, but a curse. Eli Weissel later recounts what a rabbi who was with him in Auschwitz told him at that time. It's over. God is no longer with us. But then, as if trying to correct himself, he added, I know, no one has the right to say things like that. Man is too insignificant, too limited, to even try to comprehend God's mysterious ways. But what can someone like myself do? Where is God's mercy? Where's God? How can I believe? How can anyone believe in this God of mercy? After Auschwitz, Weissel survives, and he wrote this. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke 
beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget those things, even if I'm condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Now, Elie Weissel has voiced a truly powerful and moving account of the problem of evil. His account highlights the real question at hand. So how to respond to this problem? We should not be seduced into answering as the new atheists challenge us to answer. Now, more on that later. One must be very careful in giving a response to the problem of evil. Think first of those who have suffered. A quick, formulaic account is not a good approach. However, the friendship, good example, and prayers for those who have suffered, they are the best response to the problem of evil. But there's more. What happened to Eli Weissel? Turns out now the number of survivors of Auschwitz, of Auschwitz who committed suicide is extraordinarily high. And it's kind of surprising. You think someone who survived Auschwitz would be so grateful that he's alive. But three times more than the so-called normal rate of survivors of Auschwitz committed suicide. This suggests to me that, in fact, when people encounter evil in tangible and horrific ways, it is, as St. Thomas seems to suggest, the principal reason why people despair about the existence of God. It's not from some general principle about good and evil, but the particular experience of evil in their lives. If that is right, the most persuasive response to the problem of evil is from those who have suffered evil. So let's hear what Eli Weissel has to say. His words and his acceptance of the 1986 Nobel Peace Prize are inspiring. He begins his remarks after thanking the dignitaries with a Jewish prayer. Blessed be thou for giving us life, for sustaining us, and for enabling us to reach the day, this day. In an article in the New York Times, and Weissel, after retelling the horrors of Auschwitz, concluded, let us make up, master of the universe. In spite of everything that happened? Yes, in spite. Let us make up. For the child in me, it is unbearable to be divorced from you so long. I think he expresses the response to the problem of evil best when he says, quote, I express to you my deepest gratitude as one who has emerged from the kingdom of night. We know that every moment is a moment of grace, every hour an offering, but not to share them would be to betray them. No philosophical argument, in my view, 
can improve on the words of Eli Weiss. We experience evil in the most personal way. That the wickedness of others does not destroy his faith is a great testimony to faith. For a man who has suffered so much to say, quote, every moment is a moment of grace, every hour an offering, not to share them with me to betray them. That is the best response to the problem of evil. The admission from those who have suffered that God is not the cause of evil, but God alone has the power and goodness to overcome. Now one might indeed come to know that there is divine providence over all things, but one cannot have knowledge of the significance of particular individuals and events in the divine plan for creation as a whole. And that's what the new atheists demand, an explanation of why these evils have come to this person and how can that be justified. But it's a mistake to try to justify any particular evil. You will come to see that St. Thomas's response is to answer the problem of evil in general terms, noting that God is good and omnipotent. So in response to the problem of evil, be careful. Remember, the Christian does not seek to justify the evil, but rather trusts in God's power to overcome and annihilate it. The new atheist's complaint about the problem of evil rings hollow. The problem, as they articulate it, seems academic. Comfortable academics raising an abstract, abstract problem, even if they color it with lurid details. I take much more seriously the view of Eli Weiss and others who have met evil face to face. We should not judge those who struggle with the problem of evil, but we should marvel at the testimony of those who see their way past Evil. So that's the first objection in response. The second objection could be put this way simply God is an unnecessary hypothesis. According to the New Atheists, and this is in Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker, quote, the oldest alleged alternative to the theory of natural selection is the theory that life was created by a conscious designer. It would be obviously, it would obviously be unfair, unfairly easy to abolish some particular version of this theory, such as the one, or maybe two, spelled out in Genesis. And then it goes on, all that we can say about such beliefs is, first, that they are superfluous, and secondly, that they assume the existence of the main thing we want to explain, namely organized complexity. Now in junior theology, a little later this semester, you will see St. Thomas's arguments that God is in every way simple. And in fact, simplicity is prior to complexity. He gives several arguments to show that the first cause must be simple, including that everything that is complex must necessarily be caused. But I won't anticipate those arguments. But I do note the assumption. The assumption is that 
God must be complex. And I think that shows an ignorance of the tradition of Catholic learning. But also note the claim that natural mechanisms, time, and chance are sufficient to explain all that is. The assumption must be that natural causes are adequate, and if so, an appeal to God's causality would be superfluous. And that's what Dawkins says. The theory of evolution, by cumulative natural selection, is the only theory we know that is, in principle, capable of explaining the existence of organized complexity. And he makes a crucial elaboration of this point. Single-step selection is just another way to say pure chance. Cumulative selection, by slow and gradual degrees, is the explanation, the only workable explanation that has ever been proposed for the existence of life's complex design. But there's more. Quote, we have sought a way of taming chance. To tame chance means to break down the very improbable into less probable small components arranged in series. And then the grand conclusion, it is the contention of the Darwinian worldview that slow, gradual, cumulative natural selection is the ultimate explanation of our existence. The new atheist position comes down to the following. It is out of ignorance that man posit the existence of God. Science has shown conclusively the slow cumulative natural selection and the agency of chance is, quote, the only workable explanation for the way things are. So the God hypothesis, as they put it, is unnecessary. So make one preliminary remark before going into more detail. There's a very interesting debate between Cardinal Pell and Richard Dawkins that took place in uh, Australia. And in that debate, Cardinal Pell argued that there's evidence of purpose in nature. So chance cannot be the ultimate cause of all natural things. Dawkins responded with what he thought was a devastating criticism. If there's purpose in nature, you must be able to know, for example, what is the purpose of bounties. Here again, I think you can be seduced into trying to answer that question, just as they want us to answer the question about the problem of evil. The problem here is that Dawkins begins with something in nature that is less known to us. Maybe there is complexity about purpose in nature, but our starting point should be about living beings, such as ourselves, and parts of natural beings, such as wings and gills. Do gills have a purpose? That is a better starting point than the purpose of rocks and mountains. Living things and their parts are in some way more known to us. And this is a crucial point. To think well about God, religion, or any other matter involves good sense about what is more obvious and what is less so. For the more obvious, it's easier to draw out a principle which we can employ in harder cases. We must be wary of falling into the trap 
of trying to explain complex matters in order to defend basic positions. So the first thing I want to say is that new atheists deny the more evident because of the less well known. Another presumption they make is that because they've discovered a natural cause of a phenomenon, there can be no other cause for that same phenomenon. And that's a bold claim. As contemporary science, such an understanding of the causes at work in nature that one can conclude that they are sufficient to explain all that is. Turns out that St. Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas has already considered this claim. He shows that, quote, the same effect is ascribed to a natural cause and to God. Not as though part were affected by God and part by the natural agent, but the whole effect proceeds from each, given different ways. What he means by this, I think, is that there can be several causes of any effect and there's some relation between the causes. A simple example is that the baseball player and the baseball bat are both causes of hitting the home run. In this example, the ball player cannot hit the home run without using the bat. And the bat can't bring about the home run unless it's moved by the hands of the player. Now that's a simple example, but compare this point to Dawkins's words. Natural selection not only explains the whole of life, it also raises our consciousness to the power of science to explain how organized complexity can emerge from a simple beginning without any deliberate guidance. Our response should be this. If we understand that God, the creator of heaven and earth, is not a competing cause with nature, we can avoid this mistake. Just because scientists discover natural causes in the created world, they have not thereby given a complete explanation. And as a result, they have not done away with all possible causality, much less with divine causality. To expand on this point a little, consider that each of us exists and we are what we are because something else existed before us. All of us here present owe our existence to our parents. And what is true of us is also true of them. Our existence and our nature are dependent on others. It's not necessary that we exist. We are contingent beings. Simply put, we come to be and pass away. Our nature and our existence are due to another. As St. Thomas puts it, the existence of any creature is received from another. Since what we are and that we are depends on another, our power to do anything is also dependent on another. This, I think, needs further explanation. So let me use an illustration to help clarify the point. Just as the baseball bat does not explain its own existence, or cause its own motion. All natural things have existence and power from another. So even if a natural thing really causes something else to be, 
it cannot be a sufficient cause of what it produces. It will be, in the language of Aquinas, a secondary cause. The assertion that matter, natural mechanisms, and natural powers can explain everything is not true. Every natural being is changeable and corruptible. As a result, natural things cannot explain their own existence and their own power. However true it is that natural phenomena can be explained in terms of natural causes, there's still need of a self-sufficient first cause, the cause of causes. For example, an extension cord is necessary if you want to power something that is far from an electric outlet. However, the extension cord is only a cause due to something else, the outlet. Without the outlet, the extension cord would not be a cause at all. To explain everything around us in terms of changeable, finite creatures would be like explaining how a light bulb is lit up by just one extension cord after another, without reference to an electric outlet at the origin. The extension cord, or any number of extension cords, is inadequate by itself. What follows from that point? There's no need to choose between a natural explanation based on observation and experimentation and a religious account of the universe that depends on God as an omnipotent creator. If the scientist insists that we choose between experimental science and religious doctrine, he's overstepping his authority. In sophomore philosophy, the first semester, you have the opportunity to consider several things that are implied in what I've said. In particular, there are several different kinds of causes, and that there's an order among them. In addition to the causes, there are modes of causality, including universal and particular causes, and therein lies a great deal of discussion, and essential and accidental causes, and so on. Also, you, consider, you, you encounter a thorough consideration of the nature of chance and in what way it can be considered a cause. Chance cannot be an essential principle of things coming to be. It is only a cause in virtue of something that is prior. Furthermore, chance cannot be an ultimate explanation of things coming to be. So the atheist is mistaken when he suggests that God is un is an unnecessary hypothesis. Natural causes are secondary causes, requiring more fundamental causes in order to be causes. And chance cannot explain the origin of all that is. Furthermore, in senior seminar, when you discuss Darwin, you will discover that natural selection is not an explanation of things coming into existence. It is, a, it is a hypothesis about how living things survive once they've come into existence. So we have addressed two problems the new atheists struggle with. The problem of evil and the supposed sufficiency of natural causes. Let us now look to the third objection to religion that is commonly offered by the new atheists. The Bible is a myth. 
and the blind watched me as his head doctrine's pussy. Near all, nearly all people have developed their own creation myth. And Genesis, and the Genesis story is just the one that happened to have been adopted by one particular tribe of Middle Eastern herders. And why do all people develop their own creation myth? Another new atheist, Daniel Dennett, devotes a book to that subject, breaking the spell, religion as a natural phenomenon. In that book, Dennett says this, the memorable myths and fairies and goblins and demons that crowd mythologies of every people are the imaginative offsprings of a hyperactive habit of finding agency wherever anything puzzles or frightens us. This mindlessly generates a vast overpopulation of agent ideas, most of which are too stupid to hold our attention for an instant. Only a well-designed few make it through the rehearsal tournament, mutating and improving as they go. And in more detail, Dawkins, in the book The God Delusion, says, in Genesis, the well-loved story of Noah is derived from the Babylonian myth of Uta Napithum. In Outgrowing God, he says, like countless such stories from all over the world, they're myths. There's nothing wrong with myths. Some are beautiful, most are interesting, but they aren't history. And finally, he says this, the stories, the Genesis story and the pagan myths, the stories differ in various details, but are similar in essentials. Now, a quick comparison of the pagan myths with Genesis seems to bear out this view. There are a number of real similarities between the two. In several myths, human beings are brought into being from the dirt of the earth, or clay. There's one myth, a Sumerian myth, Enki and Ninma, and I quote, take you a measure of clay and, with, and mix it with drops of my blood. When it is well mixed, cut it into portions, shape and piece, shape the pieces of clay into beings. And so it was that Enki, this god, created men and women. That seems to be like Genesis 2 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In several of the pagan myths, there's an original idyllic land. So in one, I quote, far, far away, there's a land called Dilmun. Dilmun is a pure land, a land of peace and plenty. Beasts of prey hunt not, carrion birds feed not. In Dilmun, there's no sickness, no fear. There's no slow decline into agedness. There's no death and no mourning, toil, and travail are known not. And that seems like Genesis 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. It might surprise you to, to know that in one pagan myth, there's a formation of a living being from a rib. 
But what's most uh, most commonly noted is the Great Flood. And here I'll quote from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The boat you are to build shall have her dimensions in proportion, her width and length shall be in harmony. For six days and seven nights the wind blew, flood and tempest overwhelmed the land. Finally the boat came to rest on Mount Nemush. When the seventh day arrived, I put out and released a dove. The dove went, it came back, for no perching, perching place was visible to it, and it turned around. I put out and released a swallow. The swallow went, it came back. I put out and released a raven. The raven went and saw the waters receding, and it ate, preened, lifted its tail, and did not turn around. Surely readers of Genesis are familiar with that story. So first thing I'd like to say is we should note that this criticism of the New Atheists is not new at all. In the second letter of Peter in the New Testament, we hear, quote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And Pope Leo XIII anticipated the same objection. There are those that, quote, deny that there is any such thing as revelation or inspiration or holy scriptures at all. They see instead only the forgeries and the falsehoods of men. They set down the scripture as narratives and super fables. Okay, so I assume that Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. Doesn't have to be, but I'll, I'll, I assume that. And that God is the primary author of that book, and that's true. But that does not mean that God simply dictated to Moses what to write, nor that Moses acted alone. God inspires in the same way as his grace moves us to do good works. God does not take us over. He acts on us so that we choose the good. Without his grace, we would not choose well. But nonetheless, we do the choosing. God does not choose for us. Now those of you should remember that in sophomore theology. God does not choose for us. We choose for ourselves but we only can choose well with God's grace. Pope Leo notes even if the biblical authors use elements from well-known myths, they were moved, quote, by supernatural power. God so moved and impelled them to write. He was so present to them that the things which he ordered, and those only, they first rightly understood, then willed faithfully to write down, and finally expressed in apt words. And then the Second Vatican Council, Dei Verbum, quote, in composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities, so that with him, acting in them, and through them, 
they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything which he wanted. So the objection that the Bible is merely a copy of earlier myths makes a critical assumption. If the human authors employ familiar elements in their writings, then they are not inspired by God. Rather, any inspiration was taken from earlier human authors. In other words, the new atheists think that if the authors of scripture are true authors, then God is not necessary to inspire them. But this does not follow. In fact, it reduces to the second objection that St. Thomas noted earlier. He said, it seems like all things can be explained either by natural principles or by reason and will. Therefore, there's no reason to suppose that God exists. Here, the distinction made earlier also applies. Just by discovering natural causes, it does not follow that one has discovered all the causes that are at work. The more you study scripture, the more, the more you discover its wisdom, a wisdom that far surpasses mere human authorship. For God inspires the human authors of scripture, but they write in a way that is natural, influenced by the idioms of the times, and their writing is colored by familiar expressions and understanding. And this makes sense. Think about this challenge. You have to write part of the Bible. But just as I said earlier, as I started this lecture, you have to think about your audience. Now, who's the audience that reads the Bible? That's the young, the old, the educated, the uneducated, the sophisticated, the non-sophisticated, people thousands of years ago, people today. That's a, a tall task. To write a book that will inspire people, will move people, that will educate them of all those variations. So it's not surprising that God would inspire human authors to speak poetically, to teach theological truths, and even to hide doctrines that could be misunderstood, much like the way Christ taught the parables. So it should not surprise us that some of the things we read in Genesis are like other things that would have been familiar to the human authors of Scripture. In fact, by using familiar elements, the authors of Genesis manifest not so much the similarities, but go beyond likeness to manifest how radically unlike it is from the pagan myths. This last point is crucial. What is often overlooked is that despite some superficial similarities, what sets Genesis apart from the other creation stories is its radical unlikeness to them. In one pagan myth, Enuma Elish, the first gods are male and female, and they generate the rest of the gods. So not only is this obviously polytheistic, but also the way they bring things into being is not really creation. In fact, it's a far cry from creation, understood rightly. God does not make like a carpenter who depends on pre-existing materials, nor does he bring things into existence by generation, as living things do. By contrast, 
in Genesis you had God said let there be light and there was light now that's creation in that same myth the formation of the earth and the sky is described as producing one physical thing the earth from another physical thing the carcass of a slain god there's nothing remotely like that in Genesis. In Genesis, we find these words. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The gods described in the pagan myths are weak, vengeful, and often wicked. And to the extent that a reason is given why they produce human beings, it's because of some need that the gods have. In one of the Mesopotamian myths, Atrahasis, the first gods agreed to generate creatures, the first human beings, in order to have them do the work of the lesser gods. And to generate these living beings, they had to sacrifice a god and mix his blood with clay. All went well until the number of human beings grew so large that they created such a noise that the gods could not sleep. And the final solution is to create a flood to wrap them up, to uh, wipe them out. This is nothing like, there's nothing like that in Genesis. So when the new atheists talk about the likeness of Genesis to the pagan myths, they quote very sparingly from these myths, and they avoid more of the text, which would show plainly a greater unlikeness than likeness. So a thorough comparison of the pagan myths with Genesis shows that Dawkins is simply wrong to claim that stories differ in various details, but are similar in essentials. In fact, it's the inverse. The stories are similar in various details, but differ in essentials. So a little summary of the comparison of the pagan myths with Genesis. This is not complete. Obviously, you've got one God versus many gods. You've got Lord God versus male and female gods. It's really interesting to note, for example, that in Genesis, God is never called Father. He's only called Father the first references in Deuteronomy. And I think there's a good reason for that, because when you hear the word Father, you think male. So the author of Scripture was wise to reveal God as a loving Father over time, but reveal Him first as a Lord who creates by speech. That's more fundamental. You have God who is all-powerful in Genesis versus gods who have more or less physical strength and physical needs. You have a God who creates things that are good and very good versus gods who make a chaotic world. In fact, there's nothing like this verse of Genesis in the paganness. In Genesis, we find, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There is nothing in the paganness that corresponds to the seventh day, the day that God blessed and hallowed. In Genesis, we find a God who wants us to be morally and spiritually good. 
versus pagan gods that are corrupt and are incapable of demanding a moral life from their creatures. We find a God who loves us versus gods who show little care unless they have some favorites. Even after God condemns Adam and Eve to leave Eden, it's a beautiful verse. He provides them with gardens of garments, excuse me, garments of skin to replace their fig leaves. There's a lot in that, what's going on there. In Genesis, we encounter a God who makes man in his image. In the midst, gods who are made in our image. So the favorite words in conclusion. We have noted three kinds of objection to the existence of God that the new atheists raise. One, the problem of evil. Two, the claim that God is superfluous. And three, the critique of the Bible. We have responded that the problem of evil can be addressed in terms of God's omnipotence and goodness, but the testimony of those who have suffered and still believe is a powerful witness against the problem of evil. To their second objection, we propose that one thing that one thinks God is superfluous if one fails to distinguish between universal and particular causes. And finally, the similarities between the pagan myths and Genesis are superficial and serve to manifest more profound differences between the texts that actually highlight the divine inspiration of the Bible. So the unique program of TAC prepares us well to learn from the mistakes of the new atheists. And here are some ways. One, about method. Don't start with the complex, but with common conceptions that all should acknowledge to be true. And you learn that by studying Euclid, freshman and sophomore philosophy, junior seminar, Descartes' Discourse and Method. Two, about faith and reason, the relationship between faith and reason. Sophomore and junior theology will help you understand that relation. About the problem of evil, among other texts, the Book of Job and the Brothers Karamazov. About the nature of causality, sophomore philosophy, and junior and senior theology. Luck and chance, sophomore philosophy, and sophomore seminar. And the wisdom of scripture in the theology tutorials and some senior seminar readings. So, by immersing ourselves in the program, we can become the new evangelists. We can do our part to renew the face of the earth.